0: Hello folks, welcome to another SACPA session and welcome to our Wednesday session um, in Acknowledgement of November 11th. Um, SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people and Métis nation of Alberta Region 3, and we pay respect to their past, present and future cultural heritage beliefs and relationships to the land. I'd like to welcome today with us, uh, Lauren, Lauren Finch. Um, Lauren has been a biologist for 50 years, working on many issues related to y- the use of land and water. Lauren is a professional biologist, a retired professional fish and wildlife biologist, was one of the co-founders of the stewardship initiative, Cows and Fish and a former adjunct professor with the University of Calgary. Leftbridge's home, where he pens articles and essays on issues related to Alberta's landscape and critters. Lauren, it's so good to have you with us today here. um, We're so used to seeing each other in person on SACPA sessions, but here we are over Skype and it's working wonderful. And I personally am looking very much forward to your talk. And I'm sure so are our viewers.
1: Thank, thank you, Annalise, and, uh, and good afternoon, folks. When the uh, Minister of Energy convened a Coal Policy Committee to provide a vision or a new vision on coal for the eastern slopes, five of us retired fish and wildlife biologists provided a submission to the committee based on our 50 years of experience or a period of 50 years experience dealing with coal in all of its facets. And so I'm going to summarize some of that submission for you today, by the way, if you want to read the full submission, uh, please go to the coal policy committee website. Uh, Next. The the issue I think sometimes is that people haven't had an opportunity to see what coal development looks like. And so here is what it looks like next. It is. Uh, it has many facets. Um, you could call it a brutal intervention on the landscape, and it is. And it has many steps. But to have to have a look at something close to home next. Uh, this is a, a series of photos for Tent Mountain in the Crow's Nest Pass, showing that essentially, you know, what happens is. Heavy equipment and explosives remove overburden. That overburden is dumped as close as possible to the excavation. The coal is removed, the site is smoothed a bit, the revegetation is attempted and the site is abandoned. Next. The, um, the, the issue that we often face though is that coal, like all other land uses, are cumulative at a watershed scale and there's no question that in fact the one in the middle is a grassy mountain the legacy mine site and 20 cumulative effects assessments over the last 23 years in the eastern slopes have have given us a pretty good sense that we either are approaching or we have exceeded thresholds for ecological integrity Uh, next and the cost of ignoring cumulative effects is that many of our wild species like threatened species like bull trout go missing next and this is really about the reality of the shrinking pie we all think that we uh, come into the world and we have a full pies worth of resources uh, at our disposal the reality is we come in with many slices missing And we no longer have all those resources and opportunities left. So we we need to think about that shrinking pie when we think about, you know, the prospect of coal mining, for example. Next. And when we we focus on the immediate, we miss the additive impact of the past. And so all those past land use activities also influence our decision or should influence our decisions on what we do today. Next, you know, for example, road density, this is a key ecological threshold. The uh, recommended uh, threshold is 0.6 kilometers per kilometer squared. Most of the Eastern slopes now ranges between one and six kilometers per kilometer squared. So we have wildly exceeded those ecological thresholds. Next. Uh, This graph, um, red is a a graph showing uh, grizzly bear populations, the black is bull trout populations in relation to road density. And so, you know, this is a probability of occurrence. And so the more roads we build, uh, the more likely that these critters are to wink out of existence. Next, a cumulative effects assessment done by the Alberta Chapter of the Wildlife Society you know, indicated that at the present time, you know, we're uh, we're running at a red line in the Old Man and Bull watersheds, and that's going to mean a substantial risk to threatened trout species, which are indicators, by the way. Uh, next, in fact, all native fish species that's trout or stream dwelling trout species in the eastern slopes are either of special concern uncertain status or are threatened or endangered. So this tells us a lot about our land use practices and what the effects of those have been. Next. So let's talk about coal mine development. There are some processes and issues. Uh, next, uh, coal exploration is the first step. Um, there's no impact assessment percent per, per, done per se. And, and so what this tends to be is perfunctory assessments of issues. The decisions are rushed next. There's uh, there's no oversight, um, next. And there is really no, no firm plans in place for reclamation of the, of the, uh, of the footprint. And there is no performance bond. So the coal companies that do these things are not held to a, a performance bond, which would guarantee that some level of restoration would happen. Next, then there's site preparation. And essentially that's removing all of the vegetation and the overburden to get at the coal. Next, and mine development has a scale to it. And, and oftentimes it appears that this is relatively small scale, but the impacts can occur over hundreds of kilometers, particularly downstream. Next, the one of the big issues with mine development is is the uh, interception and contaminant contamination of water. Next, and and this results in a whole bunch of wrecks. And we looked at every open pit coal mine in the eastern slopes, and we've had experience with all of them. There were operational and structural failures on all of them. And these resulted from a variety of factors, not the least of which is this is very complex, challenging terrain in which to build mines. And the other thing is that there's a failure of oversight and regulatory enforcement, particularly on the part of the province. Next, Um, coal mines really have a dramatic impact on erosion and sediment up to a thousand times that of undisturbed forest slopes and this shot of uh, grassy mountain will give you an indication of why that might be so next the um, the point is that sediment uh, above background levels has a dramatic impact on the physical habitat particularly the fish of their life cycle requirements and of survival next and, and the uh, this is exacerbated by extreme weather events that are rarely modeled and incorporated into mine designs. And so, as the cartoon series on the right-hand side of the screen indicates, you cut down all the trees, uh, you remove the ability of that vegetation to intercept and slow flow. And it's predictable what will happen, which is, Greater hydrologic response, flooding, and more erosion. Next. And as a result <clears throat> of that failure to model these, there are operational and structural failures. This is a settling pond that was built uh, below a, uh, a, sp- a spoil pile on the Tent Mountain mine that, uh, you know, frankly wasn't uh, maintained and it blew out the berm. And now the downstream portion of East Crow's Nest Creek is still covered with all of the uh, erosion remnants of the mining impact. Next, and and these tend to be massive, acute sediment releases that that uh, coat the stream bottom and uh, and and render a lot of the ecological processes and values um, as nil and and impact, of course. Fish populations. Next. The, uh, the Mount Pauly um, Independent Expert Review Panel uh, investigating that, uh, that dramatic uh, uh, failure of a berm um, said something I think that we need to keep in mind when when we're assured that we can be we can uh, design these things in a way that uh, nothing will happen. They said it is axiomatic that nothing in engineering or in life can be assured with 100% certainty. And I think we've seen that in our experience as biologists with all of the coal mines in the eastern slopes is despite the engineering or the attempts at engineering, there were multiple repetitive failures in every mine. Next. The, The thing that I... Tend to look at is uh, fish because that's my background. And I, I think it's useful to point out to people that fish aren't just a product of the water, they're a product of the landscape. And if you tinker with the landscape, you're going to impact fish. And that's going to tell you something about whether or not our management systems, our engineering, and so forth are actually effective at maintaining ecological health and resilience. Next. The, the point about fish and their presence, their abundance, and distribution, they're telling us something um, because fish are integrators, they're indicators, and they're sentinels. So when they start missing, uh, when their populations go down, when their distribution starts becoming disjunct, then I think it's a it's a signal and perhaps a report card on our failure to manage water sheds, sheds successfully. Next what what we're what we're doing is we're transforming watersheds that that have a habitat for trout that is cold clean complex and connected into systems that are warmer dirtier simpler and fragmented and that doesn't help fish populations so in summary what do coal mines do to fish well they they impact physical habitats. water quality uh, decreases and contaminant levels increase. There are hydrologic shifts so you get uh, greater floods, higher degrees of floods and uh, and often lower flows later in the year and the sediment additions become chronic and acute for fish populations and those affect fish physiologically as well. Next, two two issues, you know, I'm not, I'll just pick a couple in terms of contaminants. One is calcite, which literally cements stream substrates together. So that literally if a fish wants to spawn, uh, it would need a pick and a shovel to break through that cemented level, uh, to be able to, to create a red or a nest into which eggs are, are, are put. The the other one, which is prominent in this discussion these days, is selenium, and selenium certainly has an impact. Uh, it's been documented by many researchers. Next, and I think the big issue here is that there is no demonstrated successful selenium treatment available that that's capable of reducing concentrations to safe levels that's proven at mine scales and over long periods of time. And in fact, recent sampling in the Krosnest Pass for legacy mines like Tent Mountain show that selenium levels, um, even after uh, closure of that mine in 1983, are 20 times what the provincial standard should be for selenium. Next, our Sub, our submission to the coal policy committee based on our uh, review of it is the, the aquatic environment is harmed by coal mining and trout and coal mines cannot exist. Next. Now, from a wildlife perspective, what, what happens? Well, again, similar to fish, there's a dil- direct loss of habitat. Um, there are physiological stress issues and avoidance fragmentation of habitats and so forth, and and all of these are cumulative in terms of their impact on wildlife populations. Next, for example, grizzly bears—they're currently designated as threatened in Alberta—and they're impacted by a variety of things, including the road network that that mines need, um, recreational pressures that happen around mines, and industrial land uses like mining have been implicated in. In declines in grizzly bear populations, and most importantly, this is not something that they can evolve with because their life cycles are less than the length of a mine, and so there's no learning that happens um, so that they're ready if and when a mine is is uh, done and rest and restored. Now, the the thing that I think we all need to be cognizant of is that we are, are assured that mitigation will solve all of these issues. Next. And I, I do point uh, the one on the left, which is uh, in my neighbor's backyard. Um, he had a branch that uh, rubbed on his uh, window and he went out and started cutting away at his cottonwood tree. And before he knew it, this is what was left. And the way he mitigated this tragedy was that birdhouse on the top of that stump? And so, I'd like you to think of mitigation in those in that context. Uh, I, I think as well. Next, there there is um, there's a way that we can use our children's nursery rhymes to, to help us understand about mitigation and restoration. If you blast the top off a mountain and dump the materials into the valleys, um, you you can start to imagine even if you're not a technical expert, that all the king's horses and all the king's men will not put that mountain back together again. Next. Now, there are assumptions made um, primarily by the proponents of coal mining about things like fisheries mitigation, that if you build habitat, that it actually equates to critical habitat. And the point being is that we may not understand fully what critical habitat is. And if we don't, we don't know what to build to restore it. Um, we assume that those built habitats will increase populations, but research has shown it just shifts the, the fish population around. It doesn't actually increase it. Um, we often don't look at stream productivity as a limiting factor. And yet, um, you know, without a certain building block of things like insects, um stream populations of trout won't increase and last and and more importantly there's an assumption that if we build habitat it will persist and i'll get into some descriptions of research that i've done that show this isn't isn't real and so fish populations may move around but they may not increase and so this blows the mitigation theory out of the water quite literally next I think the uh, the thing that we need to recognize in the systems where coal mining happens, these are high gradient streams, they're dynamic, channel shifts occur on a regular basis, bedload movement, the movement of, of substrate uh, gravels and boulders downstream is common. So it's, it's hard to put a structure in place, and if you start at the upper left-hand corner, this is some work I did years ago, we thought that if we built some uh, log revetments in the upper right-hand corner that that would assure that the fish population would be benefited, but all it took was one flood and the lower left-hand picture is a picture of that revetment high and dry. And so this speaks to the failure of mitigation if we don't understand the dynamic nature of stream systems. Next, in a similar way, this is another bit of work that was done you can see the arrows showing that uh, pipeline crossing or an indication of it. The stream has shifted away and uh, all of that uh, expensive habitat development work is now high and dry. Next, and, and, and the, the failure sometimes, and you can see that they've engineered these, uh, these uh, cross-sectional uh, low head dams in a, in a mitigative sense in this uh, new channel but it fails to recognize that, that there is some physics at, at work here and that that doesn't actually work to, to maintain those systems or those habitat improvement th- things over time. Next, now th- this is often the, uh, the picture on the left is often what is referred to as a stream mitigated after coal development. But the stream on the right is, of course, what a native natural stream looks like. And I'm sure all of you can make the differential between the two. Next. Now, this speaks to the, you know, whether or not we can actually build things that last and that are of value to to, uh, fish in streams. And going right to the bottom, uh, to southern eastern slope streams, this was work done on over a decade of building mitigative and habitat improvement structures and streams this was an assessment in pre-1995 where yes about 63 percent of this of the structures were maintained but after the 1995 flood only 19 percent were left and that didn't actually speak to whether or not they effectively provided fish habitat so the the that this challenge of restoring a stream after coal mining is greater than I think the proponents of coal mining development, would have you believe. Next, now this is from a wildlife perspective. You know, this is a kind of a montage of pre-disturbance biodiversity. Next, this is what you get after coal mining development. You, you may get some bighorn sheep that will occupy these places but, but this is deceptive. And next, bighorn sheep depend on native winter range as critical source habitat. And if, and if that isn't present around a mine site, those bighorn sheep populations will not persist. Next. And, and this is based on some fundamental biology that, that the grass species that, native, that they use for critical overwinter survival Um, have the ability to retain protein content after freezing. A coal mine restoration generally uses agronomic species, uh, soft grass species, as they're called, which the protein content plummets after freezing, and so they don't provide the same benefits, even though it turns the landscape green, and the impression is that we've successfully reclaimed. Next. So just the presence or the or, or absence monitoring doesn't provide a full picture for wildlife response to restoration. And if we don't have adjacent uh, native source habitats, um, we, we aren't going to see much benefit on mined re- reclaimed sites. Next. I, I think the other thing is, is that a lot of the issues that we've seen with the latest resurgence of coal have jumped over land use planning. And the, the uh, regional plans and sub-regional plans should actually guide this as something else should next, which is science. And it, if we don't use evidence-based forms of information to guide our resource management decisions, we know what we get, and that's a, a trashed landscape uh, which doesn't have value from an ecological perspective. We may see uh, hydrologic impacts in terms of downstream flooding. And I don't think the economics of it pan out. And so next, I, I think this speaks to you know a message to the Minister of Energy and this government is that first, we need land use plans. And then we need policy on sectors. And so hopefully the coal policy committee is going to provide um, a good uh, rendition of what a coal policy should be, uh, which would be no mining in the eastern slopes. And then the minister would accept that. Next, I, I, it, it follows, I think, some old principles. I call them the rules of the earth. And I think if we follow these principles through uh, whether it's coal mining or other land use activities in the Eastern slopes and elsewhere, we would be far further ahead in terms of making good resource management decisions that are in the public interest. And I think the last one is the most important. We humans are in the loop. And so mines that, that produce contaminants that uh, cannot be remediated uh, will affect us in one way, shape or form. Next, I think this is the fundamental problem that we suffer from in resource management decisions is that development is always in capital letters and conservation is always in small letters and it's an imperfect balance. And we need to somehow find a balance that allows economic development uh, where it can be accommodated, um, but not at the expense of our natural systems which are already providing us a a variety of ecological goods and services. Next, lastly, this was our message to the coal policy committee regarding the Pandora's box of coal development in the Eastern slopes. Our recommendation was don't open it. If it's open, close it and never open it again. Thank you, and I'd be happy to uh, to take questions.
0: Thank you, Lorne. Um, I'm just, um, thank you very much for this presentation. was was great. Um, sorry, I just realized I had your last slide on, but you didn't talk about your last slide. No. Yeah, sorry, I posted it up anyway. Sorry about that.
1: that that's fine, yeah.
0: OK. Um, Knut Peterson, the comments, the comment often used by pro coal mining enthusiasts, is that if BC can do it, a few kilometers away, why not Alberta? Can you please explain what a disaster coal mining, what a disaster coal mining is in BC?
1: Well, Knut, I think it is a good question, and I think the observations that people have is that. Uh, Well, surely if BC is doing it, Alberta can do it and maybe do it better. The the problem is is that BC is not doing it better. And if I just picked uh, selenium concentrations as an example, they have spent millions of dollars in a variety of attempts to deal with selenium contamination and have yet to provide a workable system, uh, if indeed a workable system is ever uh, available, you know, with the technology that we have. And so I, I'm not sure that uh, having a BC next to us is an incentive for us to follow. I think it would be an example for us to shy away from it.
0: Um, and, and, and so how can we convince our government of that? I, sorry, begs the question, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. It, I, I, that's another good question and a perennial one, particularly with a government that seems uh, uh, adverse to evidence-based uh, materials. You know, I, I'm, I'm not suggesting that uh, that science is always the uh, the only thing that should guide us, but it should be part of what guides us. And this government doesn't seem to be able to understand that we have a wealth of evidence available. For example, in the cumulative effects assessments that have been done in the Eastern Slopes, that, that should provide a strong message that adding another land use, particularly one like coal mining, it is not a beneficial thing from an ecological perspective. And I, you know, I won't talk about the human health issues the social issues, the economic issues, or the cultural issues. Um, But we we need to use science to help us make decisions. And, And if you have a government or an administration that is adverse to science, you know what we get.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, we do. Um, our next question is from Leona Jacobs. Have you had a chance to look at the pivot by modem? Motum, re, tent mountain to move to hydrogen versus the coal project under review. What are the eco impacts of this idea?
1: I, I've, uh, I've only had a quick view of it, Leona, and I mean, I think I, I've got to give them credit for a uh, strategy of, of pivoting somewhat, um, you know, to, to ensure that the investors and potential investors in that mine are still on the hook. I, I don't know if this is a viable project or not. Uh, you know, just based on the water volumes that they say they have and, and what energy can be uh, created with that and whether or not enough hydrogen can be uh, can be made uh, you know to uh, to to warrant the investment w- what i worry about is that montem has has still not said that they won't mine coal and remember montem has uh, has leases north of the crosnes pass in the racehorse and vickery watersheds and their original intent was to open tent Mountain get a bit of cash flow so that they could start mining north of the Crowsnest Pass. And, you know, I think it's a realistic fear that, uh, you know, this could be part of their strategy with this uh, pivoting uh, from a coal mine to some greener technology. Um, I, I would be uh, I would be somewhat pessimistic about their ability to do it from an engineering perspective, from an economic perspective, and whether investors would buy into this.
0: Our next qu- question comes from uh, Juanita Fisher. I know it's not a coal mining, but now they are talking about hydrogen plants. Do you know what impacts they will have in our water? On our water, rather.
1: Yeah, and again, this is the uh, this is the Montem pivot on the Tent Mountain. Mm-hmm. The uh, As I understand it, um, they, the proposal is to, uh, is to use two old mine pits uh, that are filled with water, uh, one is at a higher elevation than the other. Uh, they would uh, extract water, drop it down in elevation, uh, create electricity that then would be used to, to develop hydrogen and, and also to pump water back up to the pit above so they could repeat the process. I, I guess if it's a closed system, um, you know, the, the impacts would be uh, somewhat minimal, but if it requires water added from our n- natural streams and rivers, then, th- you know, that gets back to, you know, do we have surplus water to do that? And the quick answer is we don't.
0: Okay, our next question comes from Cheryl Bradley. Are you optimistic that the committee advising on a call policy will provide good advice? And if so, will it be taken?
1: A, a quick scan of the call policy committee's website in terms of the submissions made to it you know, would indicate that uh, those submissions and the people that have submitted most of them, it, it's in line with where albertans are at and and albertans are firmly um in the in the uh arena of we don't want coal mines in the eastern slopes so i i I think the coal policy committee would have a very hard time uh going against that that weight of evidence and information that they have gotten to date um that indicates that this this is not a starter for alberta and that a new coal policy for Alberta should include no coal mining in the eastern slopes. I I think the question about whether or not the Alberta government will accept this, you know, might revolve around some of the legal issues. There are freehold coal uh, uh, holdings that, that, uh, you know, are waiting in the wings to be developed. And if the Alberta government comes out with a no-coal policy, um, these companies that hold these freehold rights may then have an avenue to sue the government for compensation. And so I, I think I think the reason, and we just heard today that the coal policy committee has got an extension for their report to December thirty-first. And I suspect that's what's leading a lot of the discussion is how do we stick handle around a message that, uh, that might be no coal mines in the eastern slopes, but a- avoid the, the, uh, the specter of compensation that might happen by saying that directly?
0: Okay. Um, I'm just going to go back to one of your slides, the, the slide on the grasses. Native hard grass, most difficult to restore versus non-native soft grass. Um, could you elaborate a little bit more about why they aren't using, why they aren't restoring it to the native soft grass? Like, why the are they? Hard, why are the they? The native
1: hard grass. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah it, sorry. The, the, yeah.
1: The the issue is well. First of all, those agronomic species, the non-native species, are much easier to establish on coal spoil. Um, native hard grasses are exceptionally hard. And I would say virtually impossible to restore on, on profiles of mine spoils that really have no soil left on them. And, you know, things like rough fescue grass, uh, species, you know, have, have been very problematic. It's very difficult once they're destroyed, to get them re-established again now you know there have been attempts made to get native vegetation established on these coal spoils but the reality is it that it, it doesn't take um it's subject to a lot of failure and what we're left with or what what mine companies do is they want to get it green as fast as possible for the visual impression and, and the uh the, the recognition from the government that they have done something. And so that's what we're stuck with. So, you know, it, if um, if it's difficult to get native grasses established uh, on mine spoil, it would be even more difficult on mine spoil where there's already agronomic species established. And,
0: and so just to follow up, a follow-up question, if you don't mind, Lorne. Does does this non-native, like the grass that they restore it with, It does that become invasive? Like, does it start taking over even further?
1: Uh, it has the potential to do that, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I must say, though, that, you know, even these agronomic species struggle uh, to make a living on mine spoil. I mean, wow. these are, th- this is material that has, virtually no soil profile, um, because you can't salvage enough soil uh, from, from mountainsides to, to lay over this mine spoil afterwards. You know, they're often at extreme angles, which means that erosion is a constant problem. Um, wind uh, continues to move that material around. And so, you know, these, these are not garden spots by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Right. Um, Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Can you comment on the government's proposed water policy slash permit changes and its impacts?
1: Um, I'm not sure specifically what you're talking about, whether it's, uh, you know, allocating water to coal mine companies. you know the, the government, of course, vehemently denies that they have done this. Um, the reality is is that coal mines need water, uh, primarily for washing coal. I mean, I mean, how else could they term it clean coal, if they didn't wash it? And and that requires a substantial amount of water, more more water than is frankly available in some of the small streams. Uh, on, on on watersheds where coal mines are proposed. And, and, and of course, you know, this runs head into uh, uh, recovery plans for threatened native trout species, you know, which obviously require water to survive, um, as well as the needs for downstream water users like the irrigation industry and us water drinkers in Butchbridge.
0: Uh, Knut Peterson, are you aware of any coal mining explorative activity still happening now even though Alberta has paused development?
1: Uh, No, Knut, I'm not. And, And again, I think one of the other positive signals in today's announcement from the Minister of Energy is that she's extending that moratorium on coal exploration until um, until such time as the new coal policy comes out, whenever that might be. But you know, technically, they should not be exploring for coal right now, be, because the minister has put a moratorium on it,
0: mm, till the next election. Oops, did I say that? Um. Laurie Schultz, out of scope for your presentation today, but can you comment on recent reports of lithium mining for electric vehicle batteries and its impacts? Australian mining co. appear to be interested in mining this.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm not. Uh, I'm not up on it, but I, I. I am aware of the new bits of of policy or legislation that the Alberta government has enacted. And and the one comment I would make, and this this also follows the announcement of this, uh, this Trails Act, is that a lot of these you know, policy decisions leap over completely regional planning. And it should be regional planning and sub-regional planning that help define whether or not these things should occur uh, when they can occur and where they can occur and and by doing otherwise we've essentially set up the opportunity for regional plans to fail Uh, you know as an example the uh, the Trails Act and as the Minister said in his press announcement you know would give the opportunity to build more trails well the, the issue is, is that we already have exceeded the ecological thresholds in, in virtually all of the Eastern slopes for roads and trails. If, if we want to do things like restore native fish populations or caribou or protect elk or, uh, or grizzly bears, we actually have to reduce the number of trails and roads and, and do a substantial amount of reclamation and restoration. And so, you know, this, Trails Act and probably the Minerals Act leaps over the opportunity to have a robust conversation um, done through regional and sub-regional planning uh, where where Albertans can be engaged in this and provide some input, particularly on an area that is deemed so critical and um, and important by Albertans, such as the Eastern Slopes.
0: Ian Hurdle, the first reasonable test for low level selenium only came about in nineteen eighty-five. It seemed there is a large time lag from when we can actually measure and then recognize it. Comment recognize the sorry the language here is a bit weird. Recognize TH period comment problem.
1: Sorry, yeah, Ian. I, I... Yeah, As an example, I, I think I know what you're getting at. Ian. I, I mean, this selenium wasn't something that was given much prominence until, you know, quite recently. And and the impacts of selenium probably didn't have the research um, background to them that we now understand now. And so, you know, as an example, Alberta has a, it, it, I'm not sure it's a line in the sand, but it's a suggested uh, concentration of two micrograms per liter or, or parts per billion. Now, as an example, uh, Montana, that, that has watersheds that have been impacted by mining in BC, have have enacted a uh, threshold of 0.6 micrograms per liter. So much lower than the BC government has, for example. And, and so, you know, I think this is this constant uh, tug of war between what's right in terms of what's good for the ecosystem and what industry thinks they can provide or, or wants to get away with.
0: Our next question comes from Clint Peterson. Our local Left Bridge East MLA is indicating that research around reducing selenium in contaminated water is promising. Are you aware of what he's talking
1: about? Well, I, I'm not sure what promising means in this regard. since uh, tech on the other side of the border has had several promising leads in terms of selenium contamination reduction that uh, that still don't meet the uh, standards. Uh, the ex- extended standards in BC, let alone the standards that the state of Montana would require for waters passing over their border.
0: Okay. Our next question comes from Beth Mundell. Hi, Lauren. Is there any way to help fish spawn on the calcified stream beds, perhaps by adding sand or gravel?
1: Well, work has been done on this, but you know that the sad part of it is is that once once calcite you know has been introduced to the system and and continues to trickle in, it is virtually impossible, you know to mitigate the effects of that. Um, as an example, I read years ago where salmon populations in some of the California rivers, you know were were at a low ebb because of gold mining in their headwaters releasing tremendous amounts of sediment including calcite and and one of the mitigative techniques was to drive caterpillars with uh, with essentially big harrows behind them up and down stream beds to break up this uh, cemented uh, substrate but it was never successful because there was still more to come and so the the, the best mitigative option the best management option is to keep it out of the water in the first place, just as the best management option for selenium, despite the promising uh, aspect of contamination reduction, is don't let it get into the water in the first
0: place. Our next two questions are from Bridge City News. You mentioned there are no longer places in the eastern slopes, where coal development can be safely accommodated in an environmentally and effective way. Can you explain?
1: Well, this is based on the review that the five of us made of every coal mine development in the eastern slopes uh, that we had some level of experience with, either in the exploration phase, uh, the, the mining or development phase, and in the restoration phase. And so, our contention is that it coal mining you know it that involves uh, mountaintop removal and that's what virtually well all of these coal mine proposals would be is is that they would resemble what has been done in the past the past is an example of what will happen in the future and so based on that our contention is is that there is no place that that a mine development could successfully be done and uh, and still retain all of those aspects of uh, hydrologic response, ecosystem function, biodiversity or water quality.
0: And the second question by Bridge City News, and I know I'm skipping the queue, but I'll come back to those folks uh, in a minute. An extension to the coal policy committee has been given until December 31st. Does this give you pause and more hope for a better outcome before the final submissions are sent to Ms. Minister Savage?
1: I, I don't know if it gives me uh, any more confidence. I, I suspect that they're dealing with a, a variety of issues one of which I mentioned before, which is for those freehold coal owners and and how to stick handle around, you know, saying no to to mining in the Eastern slopes without being subject to compensation. Um, The other thing is, is that uh, I I suspect that the coal policy committee has been overwhelmed by submissions. And, And as I say, based on what I read in there, their website uh, submissions and, uh, and comments from Albertans that are against coal mining. And so I, I think they're trying to do you know, a credible job of weaving all of that material into a document or maybe two documents as, as I understand it, that, that provides the minister with the most ironclad answer possible for her to make the right decision related to this
0: Leona Jacobs and I'm just putting up the slide I'm I'm hoping this is the slide she's referring to I think it is um, Leona Jacobs your cartoon illustrating flood flooding reminds me of a comment made by read the Old man dam has there been any examination of increase in sediment in the old man, old man dam from development upstream?
1: I'm not aware of any Leona, but I think the uh, the two thousand and thirteen flood um, probably provided pause for many engineers and water managers who, who thought that the capacity of reservoirs you know wouldn't be impacted by these floods and bedload movement. You know, as an example, the Transalta reservoirs in the Kananaska system you know, now have a much reduced volume because of, of the erosion and movement of bedload into them with the 2013 flood. One one can speculate, and I think there are lines of evidence that would suggest that as our land use footprint increases in the watersheds upstream of these reservoirs, that, that uh, erosion and sediment transport is going to increase as well. I, I don't think that's a an untoward uh, assumption, and that and that, that would continue to reduce the storage volume in those reservoirs and change the uh, operating potential of them substantially.
0: Our next question comes from Beth Mundell. Would it be fair to say that our fish slash trout are our canary of our environment?
1: Um, I think it would be more than fair to say that, uh, Bevan, and, you know, as a former fisheries biologist, you know, I, again, I'd make the point that fish, particularly native trout, are a report card on our ability to manage a watershed successfully. And if every one of the native trout species is in decline, is in some sort of species at risk category, It it tells us something about our ability to successfully manage watersheds.
0: Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. I'm surprised farmers and food processors downstream the Old Man River haven't or hasn't voiced more opposition to coal mining, i.e. a contaminated watershed. Arguably, it could threaten their livelihood
1: yeah Cannut it uh, I, I'm a bit surprised by that myself. Um, I, I think there's a couple things at play here. I think the first thing is is that that for many irrigators, and I'm just speculating here, for many irrigators, the source of their water is so far away from them that it's it's like city dwellers uh, thinking that water comes from a tap rather than comes from our headwaters. And so, You know the recognition of what happens in the headwaters um, and the impacts of land uses there could flow down to them. Maybe missing. So it's you know it's it's a maybe an an education or an engagement problem. I, I think the second thing is is that you know and again I'm speculating here is that it's it's often hard you know for an industry like the irrigation industry that has such financial support from the Alberta government um, to seem to want to bite the hand that feeds it. And perhaps that's why there has been not much uh, concern raised on the part of, uh, of those people.
0: Laurie Schultz, again, out of scope, but support for the Eastern Slope Mining? are based on jobs and the economy of nearby communities. Would you have any suggestions or ideas for job creation for redirecting such support?
1: Well, economics isn't my field of endeavor. And and so I, I, I'm not sure that I can provide much more than just a, a somewhat uneducated guess. But I, I, I think that what we need to do in any land use proposal is is do full cost accounting and and measure the short and long term benefits versus the costs and and see if that is actually in the best interests of Albertans, in, including those who who would be employed, for example, in the mining industry. Um, do we want to create a, a a boom and bust economy and suck people into it? And that's essentially what coal mining has been in the Eastern slopes is a boom and bust industry. Um, is it fair um, to, to lead people on with expectations and then have them dashed, you know, because of technical difficulties or frankly, the coal market collapses? Um, should we be looking at more sustainable forms of, of economic endeavor? Absolutely. What those are, I think, should be left to people much brighter than me.
0: A little bit out of scope here again, but I'm posting up your science versus everything else cartoon, where everybody's going uh, the simple but wrong way. And it seems that this or at least for me, it seems that you can apply this to an awful lot of things, including the vaccine or the way that we're handling COVID. Or how do you, how do we go about creating an education system, maybe, that would recognize complexities in science, where we maybe educate people early in life about the complexities. I don't know. What are your thoughts?
1: Annalise? this is a perplexing subject to someone who has a science background. And and I see that people, you know, run away from science and in fact uh, embrace the ignorant rather than the ones that have the knowledge that could help them on a path. Um, I, don't, I don't know what the answer is, and I, and I suspect it's getting worse with, uh, with social media and, and people only adhering to what their tribe says. Um, do we, would it be beneficial to start earlier? Yes. I, I think what we need to do at all levels, um, you know, from, from children to adult, is, is introduce the idea of critical thinking. Uh, the ability to to use information, the ability to sort through information to to um, understand what's the correct stuff or the evidence-based stuff versus what's the dross. And And instead of just listening to your tribe, um, do a bit more comprehensive dive into the information beyond which supports your current belief. And, and move to something that might challenge your belief and, and move then to a much greater uh, understanding of the evidence out there for a different perspective.
0: Ian Hurdle, my concern about downstream selenium is the potential contamination of three provinces' agribusinesses. Agri and turning their products into undesirable ones, similar to GMO label for EU. Can you comment, please?
1: Well, the, the only thing that I could add to this is that, uh, you know, the selenium that contaminates um, the Elk River in BC, you know, has found its way down, I think, 300 kilometers into Montana. And so, is there a limit? To, to the distribution of selenium from its source um, probably not and and I think that's what's that at, at the, at the crux of the conversation here is is that is that there may be there may no, be no limit to how far down selenium um, impacts uh, water quality, agricultural products and so forth in the South Saskatchewan River Basin. So you know even though we may not, know or, or may not understand now, we, we need to do the critical monitoring of water quality so that uh, so that there is an indication of what the benchmarks are today and and uh, ensure that we guard against that. Now, I, I think that one of the things that we can use as a surrogate is that all the mines in the coal branch in the McLeod uh, River, the in tributaries to the Athabasca and North Saskatchewan could be used because you know they're still pumping selenium out uh, of those old leg- of those legacy mines and the existing mines, and and that could be the way to understand how far downstream selenium and a lot of these other contaminants move, um, as as a guide to whether or not we want to introduce that in the South Saskatchewan River Basin as well.
0: That's it for our questions. We have some thank yous from Beth Mundell, Jim Miller, Laurie Schultz, and also on behalf of SACPALORM, thank you very much for your time Uh, and this very informative, wonderful presentation, um, sobering as well. Um, Before we wrap up today's session, do you have a take home message for our viewers today?
1: Well, I I would reiterate um, something that one of the media questions related, and that was, you know, as as one of our summaries in our submission to the uh, coal policy committee is, and I'll just read it to you. The Eastern slopes of the Alberta Rockies are not a frontier of unrealized possibilities. Mm -hmm. Instead, they are a busy landscape where expectations already exceed the ability of the landscape to absorb these dreams there are no longer places in the eastern slopes including current category 4 lands where coal development can be safely effectively and environmentally accommodated I, I think that would be my my best take-home message related to the experience of myself and my four colleagues who have spent a long time um reviewing and immersed in coal mining in the Eastern Slopes.
0: Thank you so much, Lauren. Um, More thank yous coming in in the chat. Um, Folks, join us again next week. We're back on Thursday next week uh, at our regular time of noon with Dr. David J. Finch. An exodus of young people, is this Alberta's future? And I look forward to seeing you all then.
1: Thank you.